Welcome to the Image Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Mesman. In every episode, we're exploring the intersection of art and faith. We'll talk to poets and writers, filmmakers, musicians, and visual artists who grapple with the mystery at the heart of religious experience. Chigozi Obioma is a Nigerian writer who has been called the heir to Chinua Echebe. Of Igbo descent, Obioma was born into a family of 12 children in the southwestern part of Nigeria, where he grew up speaking Yoruba, Igbo, and English. His first novel, The Fisherman, published in 2015, was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. His second novel, An Orchestra of Minorities, has been one of this year's most anticipated. Obioma recently joined the Image Editorial Advisory Board. As a child, Obioma says he was fascinated by Greek myths and the British masters, including Shakespeare, John Milton, and John Bunyan. He's also a Christian who grew up in the Assemblies of God and now attends a Baptist church. He says he wanted to write a novel about West African belief systems the way Milton's Paradise Lost was written in the Judeo-Christian tradition. An orchestra of minorities reads like an epic myth, spanning the earth and the cosmos, narrated by the protagonist's ancient guardian spirit. The novel borrows the familiar classical scaffolding of Homer's Odyssey, but Obioma loads it with African folklore and languages and casts a poor migrant farmer in the lead role. He said in an interview, no matter how privileged you think you are, on a spiritual level, we're all minorities, small things. For this episode, Obioma spoke with Image's executive editor, Mary Kanegi Mitchell. I'm here at the Glen Workshop in Santa Fe, New Mexico with Chigose Obioma. Chigose, I'd like to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about your religious background, um, what Christianity and other forms of belief are like in the part of Nigeria where you grew up. So I'm glad to be here. Thank you. I grew up in an America, a version of an American church called the Assemblies of God mm. Church. And, uh, you know, the, the one where we attended uh, was just a few blocks from my house uh, when I was growing up. So, but what happens is that usually people break off, pastors break off from churches and then form their own. So eventually at like maybe age 15 or so, we follow the pastor who broke off from that church and formed his own. Yeah, so, but right now I attend the Baptist church in Lincoln, Nebraska. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm a Christian. You know, I believe in God and I believe in the Trinity and, you know, the Great Commission. I believe that uh, our essence in life is to serve God and to glorify God. But I also have been doing a lot of research and, uh, you know, wanting to understand the Igbo religion or Dinani. And, you know, uh, my second novel, for example, is about that religion. You talked about doing research into Igbo religion. Yes. So what were some things that you discovered in your research? So the idea of the chief, for example, and I'm writing something about this too. So I, I think I was able to ex explain one of the phenomenons that led to the collapse of the Igbo civilization. So if you read Things Fall Apart, for example, it's about how the Igbo civilization crumbled to Western one. So what was the appeal? Why did the people completely leave, you know, their own system of government, of politics, and find this one? It was because there were some people who were marginalized. 
in the culture. So to destroy a civilization, you come through the marginalized. You rile them up and they tear everything down. I think that that would probably even happen to Western civilization at some point. The very, you know, you come to these people who are aggrieved and they would continuously tear things down. So one of the marginalized were women who, a specific kind of women, those who had had twins. Hmm. So they thought it was impossible for there to be a duplicate of you. Hmm. So what they did was, once a woman has a twin, they will just take the children to the shrine and try to discover which one is the authentic one, believing that the other one is a clone, like an evil spirit trying to like clone this one and you know form a duplicate. So they actually thought that it was a good thing. They were trying to, because if you give birth to a demon, it can kill you even at the end of the day. So it was in some ways uh, something that they were doing to save the society, you know, from an evil spirit. Uh, of course, I think it was somewhat misguided, but you know, women now, there were some of them who loved their children and they did not like that their children were being killed. So, but some believed, some were happy to sacrifice one child, but there were some that weren't. So that was one of the two I discovered. So when, you know, when the Westerners came, they just saw it as a barbaric act. You know, and they would be like, oh, these guys are just violent for, for no reason. But there was a reason to it. And so it leads back to that chi. So me getting, uh, you know, coming to understand that. They, I didn't read that anywhere, but it was the conclusion I made from, you know, understanding more about the chi. So I found that very fascinating. So the idea of the uniqueness of a person. And it was... You know, you could also see that, that that was what informed the government of the Igbo people. <laughs> so we were the only culture in Africa that did not have the idea of a monarchical system. It was completely egalitarian. They, it was the perfect democracy. Hmm. So the, there was no leader hmm. in the villages. So what happened was that the oldest man and woman in each family, in each clan, extended family, represents the, the uh, maybe, a, 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 you know, a clan of like uh, 40 people sends an emissary to the town hall. That was how decisions were made. Mm -hmm. So it was like a, an egalitarian system, the kind, the like of which, you know, is the modern Senate and all these things. So it was because of that idea of individuality. So you cannot rule over somebody who is so unique in themselves. So if you, if you look at that, you'll be able to understand. Mm. So that's more of what it did for me. Uh, and I, I feel like if my people are about able to understand, you know, some of that, it will go a long way in, I think we can use, say, the system of government, for example, you know, that we used to have. If we went back to that, you know, but we would have to leave Nigeria, the Igbo people would have to leave Nigeria, you know, break up the country for that to happen. But if we went back to that, I think it will work well for what we have now. Because corruption happens because you have some people who have power and this clout and able to do anything they want. So that's what the research has taught me, really. Mm. You know. Yeah, it seems like there's kind of an essential respect for the dignity of each individual yes. built into that. Yes.
Your novel is set in the town where you were born, Akure, and it includes a lot of historical moments. Um, the presidential campaign of MK Abiola, the Olympic gold medal win by the Nigerian men's football team. What was it like for you to write about moments for your own child from your own childhood? through the eyes of someone who isn't you. Did the boys in the novel see these events differently from the way you saw them when they were happening to you? So, you know, uh, I, in my opinion, I think fiction is this phenomenon uh, that is at once mysterious, but also, you know, identify, recognizable. So usually we take fragments of real life and uh, mold them, remold them in such a way that sometimes they become unrecognizable by those who have lived the experience. So uh, aspects of the brothers uh, definitely were from, uh, you know, some of my own uh, siblings. But the thing is, you know, they were after reading the book, you know, some of them would ask me, oh, well, but this looks like me, but then it's not, you know. So, mm -hmm. so the brothers in the novel are a montage of, you know, different qualities of uh, my siblings. But yes, uh, the, some of the historical you know, uh, moments in the book did occur. Uh, but the the reason for, for them being in the book was to ground the novel in a, a historical context and to lend it some kind of authenticity. And, uh, you know, so, so that when people read the book, which has been the experience, especially those who grew up there or in a similar setting, they often would write to me or, you know, meet me at a festival or something like that and be like, you know, this reminded me of my childhood and I recognize that. I remember that. The characters in the novel move back and forth between speaking English, Igbo and Yoruba, um, sometimes within the same conversation, which is what for me was one of the really interesting things about the book, why they're using which language and which context and what you say in one language versus another. But how did growing up in a place with a lot of different languages are spoken shape you as a writer? Well, it does a lot of things. So the reason for that kind of multilingual uh, identity is that, uh, you know, Nigeria was colonized by Britain. So we were part of the empire, I assume, as America was at one time. Uh, so Nigeria would be impossible without the English language. So Nigeria is a contraption of different states, you know, the Igbo people, for example, are 40 million, you know, or even 45 million. So that's the, so it's a nation within a nation, which is one of the reasons why it doesn't work. You know, the, the entire Scandinavia put together is not even up to 40 million. Mm -hmm. So what you do is once you are born, usually you are speaking at least two languages. So English and the language of your tribe. Uh, but it happened that myself, as well as the boys in the novel, uh, this family in the novel, uh, you know, I was born in the west of Nigeria, which is, uh, you know, my, my family are from the east. So another language is spoken, Yoruba. So which meant that the moment I began to speak, I was navigating between three languages. So what happens is that unconsciously, the languages are compartmentalized and they be become functional. So English, for example, becomes a language of formality. You know, that's what you spoke in schools. That's what, you know, you wrote in. 
then uh, Yoruba becomes a different function. It's a language with which you communicated with the local people. And then Igbo is a language of your family, of your origin. So that's what we spoke with our parents, you know. So, so that's the same with, you know, Ben's family in The Fisherman. So, but what it does as a writer is, I think that uh, to some extent, it can, there are some figurative language or flourishes that sometimes, uh, you know, you might see in my work that may have been uh, unconsciously, you know, coming from that wealth of languages. Uh, but I think it can also be a hindrance in some ways. Uh, I also speak Turkish now, and I remember that once I began to speak that, it infected my English mm. in a way because now I be, you know, Turkish language uh, was difficult and I learned it, you know, at 21, 22. You know, so navigating between these two, sometimes you lose sense of which is which syntactical imbalances occur here and there. So, but I think that it does help to, to know more than one language. Uh, and I would think that that was why uh, people like early writers in the you know English tradition, say Milton, for example, or Melville, or you know some of these guys who knew Latin, who actually Shakespeare, you know, could even write in Latin. Uh, you know, you, you can you read their work, you see the difference between them and contemporary writers who only know the English language. Do you ever write in Igbo? I have tried. Uh, the thing is, most people will read in English in Nigeria, so it feels like a waste of time. But, you know, there's, uh, it's in the work to translate the fishermen to Igbo, yes. But, but the funny thing is that I can read and write Yoruba more than I can Igbo hmm. because I grew up in the West where Yoruba is a, is a language. So I never really learned how to read Igbo except by myself, you know. So I, it was something I, I I started to do myself, yes. So it's the language you spoke with your parents? Yes, it was yeah. just the language I spoke with. In fact, I wasn't fluent in it until, you know, we left Akure and my dad was afraid that we won't know how to speak the language very well. And so he placed a ban on Yoruba in the home <laughs> <laughs> because we spoke Yoruba between, you know, our siblings. And that was how we were forced to, you know, start speaking it some more. Yeah. I mean, it does sort of seem like the Igbo has a role of, for an Igbo family in a place where most other people are speaking Yoruba, like mm. it's part of kind of the intensity of the bond of that yes. family. Yes. The river is a really important part of the novel. Um, and there's a real sense of sadness about the river in the way it's described. Um, the river seems to have been connected with older religions before the coming of Christianity and to have had a happier past maybe. Um, but now it seems like this dangerous, unhealthy place. That's how the adults mm -hmm. see it. For the mm -hmm. boys, of course, it's incredibly attractive. <laughs> um, sort of like a... It's, a renegade. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about the river in the book and you know the, the spiritual power of water, mm -hmm. you know, f for Christians is, is significant? Um, yes. Yes. Uh, so one of the dimensions in which uh, I believe the novel operates or it's intended to operate is that is, it also makes a commentary on uh, larger political issues. 
So I know this has been beaten to death, but when I, I went to school in Cyprus, you know, I had a crushing epiphany there. So on arriving, uh, this island that has uh, practically nothing, uh, I was very surprised. I mean, I knew uh, about Europe and America, you know, they were advanced and had, in terms of prosperity, you know, uh, material prosperity and all that. You know, but seeing Cyprus with like uh, constant electricity, you know, healthcare, and, you know, I began to question. So Nigeria is a very wealthy country in terms of oil and gas. Up till 2013, uh, most Americans don't know this. Uh, America was buying 15 to 20 percent of gas consumed here from Nigeria. But why, why then didn't we have some of these things? No 24-hour electricity. It's on and off. Sometimes you have it for six hours, then it goes off for four hours, you know, and then comes back. So I began to think, is it that we are stupid people or what is the problem? And so I went on a personal quest to discover. So I read uh, almost everything. You know, it was very intense uh, moment of period of real scholarship for me. So I read everything about our history and I came up with the conclusion that you know, even though we didn't have all these technological advancements and all these things, uh, you know, prior to colonial incursion, uh, subsistence, they were, it was impossible for you to find someone who didn't have food or shelter. You know, subsistence was a thing that everybody had, but today people didn't have it. And then now, uh, you know, you have all these poor people and all that. So uh, I came up with the conclusion that the interruption of the civilization is one of the reasons why, you know, we are struggling as we are today. So the river signifies that structure. Mm. So it used to be revered, it used to be the symbol of the Yoruba culture, but which was interrupted. So the madman in some ways is also a metaphor for that. You know, so the boys at the beginning of the novel have these aspirations. They want to be doctors, lawyers, and all these things. And then this outside force comes in and disrupts the equation, says that they're going to be, you know, these, and it destroys their life. So that, it's a, in some ways, is also a metaphor for uh, Nigeria, for what became of these different civilizations or cultures that collated into one and is not functioning. Mm. And for the boys, that attraction to the older culture, sort of, yes. it's irresistible, it pulls them. That's right. One of the things that strikes me most about your novel is the vividness of evil, which today doesn't seem like a thing we're very comfortable talking about. There's a character in the book, this madman, who seems to be a conduit for evil in the lives of others and damage, though he's also strangely sympathetic. Um, as we read, it's almost unbearable to watch how the consequences of that evil unfold in this family that we've come to love. How do you think about evil as a force in this world from your own religious education or from your lived experiences? Well, I think that that's a very philosophical question. Uh, evil is something that cannot be rooted out in this world, I think. As long as we live here, it's going to be with us. And I think that there's so many people who have this sense of 
who embodied themselves with the idea of uh, trying to root out evil, you know, which is an impossibility, uh, you know, because of the, if you were to explain it through the lens of Christianity, you know, the fallen state that we're in. So, you know, what you describe as evil also can be, some people believe is relative. You know, some things, uh, like the madman himself, he's not conscious of what he's doing, you know, so he's in a warped state of, of consciousness. You know, so there's a chapter devoted to him in the novel where there's a duality to him in the sense that sometimes his prophecies does wreck you know, cause havoc, uh, like there's a young girl who commits suicide upon receiving his prophecy. Uh, but then, uh, you know, there are times when he saves people too. So he's, uh, he's just that looming force in the world. It can go either way, you know, and I think that's the same way with uh, how we are in, the, in, in life. One of the concepts that I was working off of when I was writing the novel is the idea of the metaphysical arrow, you know, that hits you. So sometimes evil can happen to us and we would not have done anything to deserve it. You know, think about uh, in, in 2015, there was this news about, you know, a, a little uh, seven-year-old girl or something like that, you know, who was doing homework and there was this drive-by shooting on the highway and a bullet penetrates the roof and hits her and kills her, you know. She was just there. She did not do anything to deserve it. Didn't even, you know, those guys were having their own thing, their, their, their own uh, problems. But she died. So how do you explain something like that? So that is also, you know, one of the very mysterious aspects of, of human life, I think. I'm, I'm struck by what you say about it being almost like it's a mistake to think that we can root evil out. Oh, yes. Something we live with in this world. Yeah. yeah. You know, some, for example, sometimes my students come up to me and, you know, they are very miserable. And then I look at them. I, I'm like, okay, you're 17 years old or 18 years old. You have a car. You know, you're, you live in the U.S. Your life is good. Uh, you don't have any illness that is debilitating in any way. But you embodying yourself with all these ideas of wanting to get uh, what I call cosmic justice. You know, oh, there's racism in this world, there's this one. In the, and every day, you know, you think about it, you go on Twitter, you do all this rage. And, and it's eating you up, you, you know, alive. So you embodying yourself with this big cosmic quest to root out evil in the world. How can you, you just... You're just this one person. You're too small to tackle. So what are you going to do? Are you going to go into the heart of every human being alive and stop them from thinking of black people in the way they want to? So, so this is some of the things that people do to themselves. And at the end of the day, they are miserable and they can't explain why. Mm -hmm. So I think wanting to root out evil in the world is... Even God did not do that. God allowed sin and evil to exist. So how much more you as a human being, you know, wanting to tackle this cosmic uh, question? Yeah. I mean, in that light, it strikes me that the word and the idea evil are useful because even if we can't root it out, just to be able to name it and call it evil yes. and wrong yes. is important. Yes. Um, even if yes. it's... even if And it reinforces it. the... Uh, it is by 
so failure i, I was telling uh, the folks at the workshop yesterday failure is the a deviation from a part of intention towards something you know that's what differentiates it from pure accident so pure accident occurs where there's no intention you know I, I don't intend to so if i don't intend to drop this thing but it falls you know but if i intended to drop it and somehow i'm unable to do that it still remains here then i have failed so if you recognize evil uh, then it probably will reinforce the intention towards good by discovering it in itself yes so from the very metaphysical to the more concrete mm -hmm. um Almost all the chapters in your book are named after animals, the python, the moth, the sparrow, and so on. And each animal offers a sort of metaphor for what one of the characters is undergoing in that chapter. And that seems to point to a sort of permeable membrane between the human world and the natural world. And could you talk a little bit about your relationship to nature? So uh, I loved birds from when I was a child a lot. I've, you know, lost that fascination to some extent now. But yes, I used to uh, think about them a lot as a child. But in the novel, the reason for that premise is actually to give uh, what I think would be a Dixon's structure to the book. So I discovered that as a child, I used to try to understand the world by association with something that, you know, uh, I already knew. Uh, and I think that that is uh, somewhat true for some children. <laughs> if you're into comics, for example, and you want to understand why somebody, you know, is as big and muscular and heavy, you know, can punch and, you know, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, for example. So you probably would, you know, say, oh, he's like a Superman or something like that. You know, maybe somebody bullies you at school, maybe Roy does. And, you know, you want to tell your mom, you'll be like, this guy who is like a Superman just beat me up or like Arnold Schwarzenegger. So that's how they're able to make sense of by comparison to something else. So Ben in the novel, who is the narrator, also loves animals and, you know, he's able to understand phenomenon like his father leaving home, you know, to walk, uh, you know, by, by being able to associate that quality to, okay, what he knows that eagles do, you know, they leave the nest and go to hunt. So he's able to understand, okay, so this is why my dad leaves home. So that's why, you know, that, that's the reason for those chapters. So the father is likened to an eagle, for example, and then, you know, the, the brothers to, Eve, you know, pain to spider and all of these things. Mm, you know? Yeah, that's beautiful. So the natural world can help a child make sense of a confusing yes. reality. Absolutely. Yeah, that's lovely. You've lived in the U.S. now for how many years? Going to six. Six years, okay. And so you've hinted at a few things, but I'd love <laughs> to hear you talk about um, Christianity looks different in every part of the world, and I think we're maybe a little bit blind to what's American and what's mm. Christianity. So for someone who's been around for six years, what do you notice about Christianity in America that seems different? 
So uh, I did uh, an interview where I was asked this question. I think one of the big Christian magazines in, in America, I think it was Christianity Today or Christian Post. So I, I think that Christianity in Nigeria, for the most part, there, there are very small groups uh, of like evangelical or Protestant churches that I would say pure religion, what Paul would call pure undefiled religion. That's a practice that. But what happens is that people almost never completely abandon their culture, even when necessity has put them into, you know, a new one, especially in the collective sense. That's what uh, uh, most Africans, especially Nigerians, have done. So they have taken aspects of Odinani, for example, the Igbo religion, and mixed it with Christianity unconsciously, and they themselves cannot tell that they've done that. So the, the Christianity here in Nigeria looks very different from this one. For example, Nigerians would always quote the Psalms, you know, so my dad would write to me now if I'm about to travel and he would say, okay, wake up at the stroke of six or 12, very specific time, and uh, read out uh, all of Psalms, Psalms uh, 66, for example, or the Lord is my shepherd and, and I shall not want. So the reason why he's doing that is because in the Igbo religion, incantations, you wake up and then you do, <laughs> you make incantations. Mm. But he doesn't know. So he's like, okay, well, I have this new faith now. I will import this thing that makes sense and mix it with it, which is what even the Roman Catholic have done. So the idea of the, you know, the Madonna and all these images, so in their old religion, the you know Roman religion, they made status of Apollo. It made sense to them. They made status of everything. So okay, now we are Christians. Well, let's make status of of Christ as well. You know that's where it comes from. It doesn't matter whether the Bible says you should not do that. You know it, it doesn't make sense to them that you should not revere God the way they used to do. So that's what the Nigerians have done. So it is a very striking difference. Almost in every way. I mean, they still, you know, they pray to Christ and all that. But if you were to go to a typical Nigerian church, you will be surprised, you know, as to how it is running. So, uh, which is one of the reasons why, uh, you know, I never almost hardly go to Nigerian churches. The Nigerian churches in America here, because I, I know that they are not seeing it, but they changed so many things there. So many things have been modified to suit uh, this thing. And lastly, there was one time when I was in Michigan when, uh, you know, I saw this guy who was Hindu. He came to church and then he said, oh, he's interested in Christianity. And, or was he Buddhist or Hindu, one of the Indian religions. And so, you know, we said, okay, join. And then he came to Bible study after like, you know, a day or two, he was like, oh, I'm now a Christian. So what he did was there are 9 million gods already. So he just added Jesus to the list, mm. you know, so it doesn't cost anything. Mm. You know, you just add him in. He's open to having as many. He could even have 10 million, you know, gods. It doesn't matter. Mm. So that's his orientation and that's what Christianity is to him. Mm. 
Your new novel, Orchestra of Minorities, is coming out from Little Brown. It's a fascinating, intriguing title. Would you talk a little bit about your new book? Yes, yes. Uh, so the idea, I think, probably of what we talked about when we were discussing evil earlier on. So the idea of fate and destiny. So the was believe very strongly that everything is preordained. At the same time, man can negotiate his way out of destiny. So, and you can do that through, there's a mediator, you know, in the Bokor beliefs, and the religion is very sophisticated. So every human being has a personal God. So the chi that prefixes my name, for example, Chi Gozier or Chinua, does, the chi is a personal God. So it's like a kind of a spirit being that lives in you, but at the same time, continues to reincarnate. So it lives on. It is the one that will go when life ends to the Supreme God and give a kind of testimonial report about how you've lived your life and all that. So but he, he or she is constantly trying to negotiate something on your behalf. So that's why in the, I used to hear right from when I was a child, if something happened to me, even though my parents were are Christians, they would say, well, this is what his chi has negotiated for him. Hmm. You know, maybe when you fall sick or something like that. And everybody said that. And I didn't, you know, I kept thinking, why, why did they say this? You know, and so the novel is about that. The novel is, tells the story of this guy who is a poultry farmer who falls in love with this woman of high estate who is about to become a medical doctor. And the family opposes the marriage. So he sells everything he has to go to school so that he will be able to marry her, you know. So that's, so it's a love story, but the story is told by his chi oh. and this mediator. So half of the novel happens in cosmic space. So we're constantly shuttling between the world and, you know, the ethereal world. So it's, uh, you know, you have the chi telling the story. The chi sometimes goes back uh, to make references to 300 years ago when it embodied another host who is now gone. So the novel exists, I can say maybe over 500 years or something like that, you know, but it's still now. So it's the book I've always wanted to write in some ways. It's, it's uh, very ambitious and it did tax me a lot to write it. So I look forward to sharing it with the world. So Orchestra Minority speaks to that struggle to overcome your what is preordained for you. So it's like a meaningless chatter, a kind of song that doesn't make sense, mm. you know, we're, we're there. So the image is drawn when, you know, a hawk attacks the poultry and picks one of them. So once that happens, I saw that growing up a, a lot, a kite or a hawk, one of these predator birds, picks up a chick and then you see the mother. The mother does the spin and is always just crying. Mm. You know, that's all he, she can do. She can't do anything else. That is deemed as a kind of a song of the powerless. So I've kind of stretched the meaning, mm. you know, to come up with that title mm. uh, because I, I think that it sounds very, it's symphonic. I love the way that sort of the metaphysics of the book, uh, the idea of that she are also driving the form of the book yes. and that, that idea of using that as a point of view character sounds totally fascinating and I can't wait to read that. Thank you. Well, thanks for talking with me. Thank it's been a pleasure. Orchestra of Minorities from Little Brown. Thank okay? you very much. Thank you. 
please visit the IMAGE website at www.imagejournal.org. There, you can learn more about each episode of the podcast and find links to books and other resources discussed. You can also subscribe to the quarterly print journal and access the IMAGE archives, more than 30 years worth. To learn more about how you can support the creation of this podcast and the artists we feature, visit patreon.com slash image podcast. If you become a patron, you'll receive some exclusive image merchandise, access to exclusive content, and more. Your pledge will help us continue the conversation about art, faith, and mystery. Thank you.